0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper.
1: And I'm Aaron Matic. Katie, breaking news from the Useful Idiots universe on your show, The Katie Helper Show. You got a scoop the other day.
0: Indeed, Aaron, indeed I did. And I interviewed friend of show, uh, who's been on the show, although not while you co-hosted. We'll have to get him back on the show. Brother Cornel West, who of course is running for president. He was initially running with the MPP, the Movement for a People's Party. And there was some pushback about that. And let's see what he's saying now. I wanted to ask you, of course, about your presidential run. And there's some exciting news, I believe. So last week, Chris Hedges, friend of the show, Chris Hedges said during an event for Workers Strike Back, which was organized by Kshama Sawant, he said that he wanted you to run uh, as a Green Party candidate. And you, of course, when you announced you were with the movement for the People's Party, the MPP, do you have an update about this? Oh, yes.
2: No, that that process is very much uh, uh, in movement, and uh, I look forward to it. You know, I'll always have gratitude for the tremendous uh, work of the volunteers of the People's Party and so forth, uh, but there was so much going on in, internally, and, and therefore, we had to be able to keep the focus where it belongs, and so we're... We're still. I am still deeply committed to a broad coalitional sensibility and the united front, and so I invite a variety of different organizations, and that includes the People's Party. But I'm, I'm certainly moving in the not just toward, but want look forward to being a part of the nomination process of the Green Party, and I look forward to being able to already be in very rich conversation with my dear brother, uh, Barack and my dear sister Stein, sister Jill and brother Ajambo, who I have uh, great love and respect for. So that that's true, that, that is new. And we, which means when right. it comes to infrastructure and institution, it's much broader and deeper. Access to the ballot, much broader. But in the end, as you know, this, you know any candidacy uh, to run the empire in order to dismantle the empire has to be part of a movement. So right. it's really a moment in a much larger movement, domestic as well as international to keep the focus on precious poor and precious working people, wherever they are.
0: And during the interview, I asked him why he didn't run with the greens from the start and why he started with MPP. And he answers that question. You can find that at youtube.com slash the Katie Alper show.
1: Well, Katie Hopper breaking some political news, candidacy shakeup that's and uh that's exciting go. this whole little saga it's an example of it's it's hard out here on the left to more organize and run and there's so much infighting and accusations and uh so dr west trying to put the issues first yeah and uh i hope it goes well
0: i'm excited that he's in the race
1: absolutely very excited yeah very very excited i was hoping he would run and yeah. uh, for once actually my political wishes came true so um it's it's great to see
0: yeah, it's great to see. I asked him also about why he didn't run as a Democrat. Obviously, you know, there, there are reasons you can probably think of that why he didn't run as a Democrat. But it is, it is a challenge because when you're not running as a Democrat, you uh, are excluded. But the, but of course, as we're seeing with RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, you're excluded anyway. So what's the point of running as a Democrat?
1: I hear that. Yeah. Damned if you do, damned if you don't.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So best of luck, Cornell. And you got the Katie Halper Show bump, and we're ready to give you the useful idiots bump when you come on, and it's going to be a game changer. You think that was big news, switching to the (laughs) the Greens. Wait until you come on, useful idiots. Things are really going to
1: change. Yeah, I mean, my main line of inquiry for Dr. West would be how he feels about the Green Party's uh, foreign policy views. Because after Jill Stein left the Green Party um, leadership, after she was no longer the candidate, Howie Hawkins came in, and Howie Hawkins supported the dirty war in Syria. I'm pretty sure he also supported the proxy war in Ukraine too. So the Green and he Party
0: rush-a-gated. he did Russia he was
1: he was a hardcore Russia So yeah. the Green Party has some issues of its own that hopefully Dr. West can shake that up as well.
0: Well, he's he's good. You know, one of the things he's running on is ending the war in Ukraine. He he talks he his line is basically you know Putin invaded uh, unjustifiable but totally predictable and avoidable because of yeah. NATO. Well, hey. Okay. Yeah. No.
1: I can sign on to that, and yeah. uh, I look forward to Dr. West getting out there. Yeah. Good for him. Alrighty, as always, you can go to usefuladiates.substack.com or useful usefuladiates.locals.com to support us and get bonus content.
0: Not only do you get the extended interviews, so for instance, we have a great extended interview with Oliver Stone where he talks about the Ukraine proxy war, and he, of course, is someone who interviewed Putin. He made a whole series interviewing Putin, and I asked him if he could have made a show like that today. Guess what he said? But uh, you also get access to our Thursday Throwdown, which is where we bring you your midweek dose of media madness, and we react to ridiculous clips. And we got a great clip for you today—one great Jake Tapper clip uh, with Brother Cornell West, actually. And and it's an amazing—you got some amazing facial expressions from Jake Tapper. And honestly, it's worth becoming a Substack our local supporters just to see that face.
1: All right, let's get to our four basic food groups. For Democrats, suck. We're gonna turn to leading Democratic cable news pundit host Rachel Maddow. And in covering the indictment of Donald Trump over mishandling classified documents, Maddow kind of gave away the game.
3: You have to wonder if the Justice Department is considering whether there is some political solution to this criminal problem whether part of the issue here is not just that trump has committed crimes but that trump has committed crimes and plans on being back in the white house do they consider as part of a potential plea offer something that would prescribe him proscribe him from 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 running for office again i don't know i, I would imagine if anything like that happened that it would have to come from the defense side of the negotiation. That the that the Trump team would would say, "Oh, by the way, and with this, we will also, you know, drop out of the uh, the race for president." Uh, otherwise, it would put the Justice Department in this position that Donald Trump claims they're in. You know, he claims they're trying to stop him, simply trying to stop him from becoming president again, and that's the only reason. Uh, they're doing this. So my guess, given those dynamics and the change, I think, in the way uh, the Justice Department sees this in those 50 years since Bureau of uh it just seems unlikely that they would reach into the political zone of the solution. Our politics does have to find a solution to this, but it might have to find that solution separate and apart from the criminal process. Do you see how awkward this is? Like Trump's whole mantra is they're
1: charging me because they can't stop me politically. They want to stop me from running. And Rachel Maddow, who is like, you know, a leading voice of the Democratic Party on cable news, comes out and says, hey, maybe we can reach a deal in which he agrees not to run in exchange for the charges being dropped. So she's basically (laughs) confirming Trump's whole thesis.
0: Right. Right as Lawrence O'Donnell kind of points out to her.
1: Yeah, he has to like remind her, like, yeah, Rachel. like, yeah. And this is just a, an example where Trump has broken people's brains and they start delving into the realm of fantasy. So just like Maddo was fantasizing that Trump was really a Russian conspirator and that was going to bring him down, now she's entertaining the possibility of the DOJ somehow negotiating agreement where he agrees not to run, which would kind of prove Trump's entire point and undermine the basis of the legal system to begin with where you know like you don't prosecute people to prevent to prevent them from running you're supposed to prosecute them if they commit a crime so what a very telling moment
0: but also isn't rachel maddow no longer uh hosting a show
1: She's still making the same salary of more than thirty million dollars, but she reduced her workload to one show per week.
0: Oh, I got it. So obviously she was gonna come in. I mean, I thought maybe she had retired, but was coming back in. Like she did. What was that announcement? Some one wall was closing in, one wall and another was closing in on Trump, and she was on like a fishing vacation and she came back to work and like was crying.
1: That was when the Mueller report. Uh, was submitted and the Mueller investigation ended with nobody somehow being charged with a sweeping right. conspiracy with russia what a shocker that was right and maddo had to come in from her fishing vacation and handle that inconvenient fact that yeah. the indictment she was basically promising for years and years and years was not going to happen and that the trump russia investigation wasn't dud. and she had to interrupt her fishing vacation for that it was a right. pretty funny moment
0: her wife must have been really annoyed she she must be a hard person to be married to a lot who knows? Of I that. mean,
1: or, or or you know, yeah, I mean, you or know. maybe
0: she was supportive of it. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. I just imagine if my I had a partner who was always going back to work to to cry, and also it brought her to tears. So I actually hope her wife was being a supportive partner. And now moving on to Republicans suck. Speaking of the Trump persecution and prosecution, let's hear what former uh, Arizona governor candidate Carrie Lake had to say about the indictment.
1: If they think they're going to hurt, lay a finger on our president, President Trump, they're going to have to come through me. And I made a mistake. I said 75 million others just like me. I think it's more like 300 million others just like me. The people in this country who support President Trump, who know what's up, who know that that botched election was an attempt to prevent him from getting in office and cleaning up the corruption in our country. And I said, I said, as an aside, and most of us are NRA members. That is not a threat. That is a public service announcement.
0: Thank you so much, Carrie Lake that PSA, that generous PSA, where she's just reminding us as a point of information that most of Trump supporters are NRA members. You got to get through the guns, her guns, as in her, you know, I'm sure she she means uh, her biceps, but also you're going to have to get through actual guns, apparently, to get to Donald Trump. So she's on, she's on alert.
1: So that's a good contrast to Rachel Maddow. Maddow is uh, envisioning the prospect of the DOJ negotiating with Trump for him never to run again, and you know that solved the Trump problem from the eyes of from the point of view of liberals. And Republicans like Carrie Lake are envisioning what, like an army of of NRA members stopping yeah. the prosecution of, of Trump. It's uh, it's it's a contrast in uh in in visions here, and right. I don't know who will prevail. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Well, it's funny. It's a contrast, but it's also in some ways, it's like the equivalent. It's the other side of the same coin. So you have uh, liberals like Rachel Maddow perpetuating the right-wing fantasy about, or or reality, depending on how you see it, but of, of the uh, persecution, prosecution of Trump, right? Where she's saying, basically, why doesn't the Justice Department say he can't run? And that, of course, is going to just drive the right crazy and say, And they're going to say, see, we were right. And then you have Carrie Lake on the right saying basically, you know, come, come get it, come take him away from us. Good luck getting through the NRA, which of course is perpetuating the idea that the libs have about, uh, right wingers being a bunch of gun toting, uh, crazies. But the truth is there's, there's truth in both sides. I would say.
1: There is, we need a, we need a, we need a psychologist to come work this out. This is uh, some, some, some dueling projections here and, uh. Who will prevail? Stay tuned.
0: We need couple therapy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. For isn't that weird, let's go to the Pride Parade from Washington, D.C., which had a contingent from noted LGBTQIA champions Lockheed Martin.
0: So for people just listening, what's happening here is you have a uh, a group of people marching. They have rainbow paraphernalia and they have a huge banner that's rainbow colored and says Lockheed Martin.
1: That's a big turnout from Lockheed Martin. And I got to say that flag, the Lockheed Martin logo with the rainbow flag, that does look pretty cool. If, if the, I think they should make that permanent.
0: I really like the fans, like the 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 fans people were holding that were rainbow themed. I like them. And it gave them a chance to really like show some flair with the way that they were uh, fanning themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look, if you're a weapons maker, a merchant of death, this is great marketing. As to you know, not my community, but I I I wonder what kind of conversation is going on in the LGBTQIA community about the presence of weapons makers. At, at pride rallies there's got to be some pushback to that i imagine
0: well you know what's beautiful about it is to be fair when they drop their their bombs on people they don't discriminate they kill lgbtqia people as much as they kill straight people so they deserve credit for being (laughs) so inclusive
1: yeah 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 so and they that's why they're making their presence felt
0: when they break the glass ceiling they literally break ceilings (laughs) yeah well, so for Isn't That Terrible, we have a, talk about a PSA. This is really a PSA. So I'm going to go, of course, to the New York Post, and this is worth showing the the actual article because, as usual, the New York Post has some great, really great headlines and really great uh, pros. Big penis pills pose serious risk, government health alert. They issued a PSA, a penis supersizer advisory. Aussie men will have to find alternative ways to get endowed down under. Australian health officials are warning people to stop taking Big Penis USA pills after finding that the male enhancement medication contained an undeclared and very popular libido booster. And the PSA says Big Penis USA tablets pose a serious risk to your health and should not be taken. And uh, I just wanted to take the time to share this news because people need to know this. And going back to the article, it says, the public health watchdog had discovered that these pharmaceutical phallus fluffers Secretly harbored sildenafil, the erectile dysfunction medication sold under the brand name Viagra.
1: You have to admire the New York Post's uh, gift of gab, phallus yeah. fluffer. I mean, how did yeah, they come good. up with that stuff? I, really I couldn't good. come up with that in a million years. That's that's just really impressive.
0: So, I mean, first of all, if what do you, as an Australian, show some patriotism? What are you doing, ordering pills called Big Penis USA? Mm. That's what you get for uh, perpetuating the American Empire, the U.S. Empire, but.
1: Well, unlike the FDA, we don't discriminate against uh, penis enhancement pills. So, Big Penis USA, if you're out there watching and you're looking for endorsement opportunities, the useful idiots will happily market your yeah, product. It's true. We're not, we're not afraid of the feds and their, and their bureaucratic uh, overreach.
0: Right. Over, overreach around.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good.
0: Thank you. All right, and those are your four basic food groups. Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird and isn't that terrible? And just as a reminder, in case you're new to the show, those are the four basic food groups that all news can be broken down into. Very excited to have joining us today, Toure, who is a host and creative director at The Grio. He's a TV host, a podcaster, and the author of eight books, including The Ivy League Counterfeiter and The Prince Oral History, Nothing Compares to You. He is the host and writer of the podcast docuseries Being Black in the 80s. And that is what we will be talking about today. So let's go to Toure. Toure, welcome. We are so excited to be talking to you today.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So tell us about this podcast, Being Black in the 80s, which is a great podcast. I binge listened to it. Why did you make it in the first place? What what gave you the idea to do it?
4: Well, I've been thinking about doing something like this for a long time, and I was really honored that the Griot finally gave me the space to do it because I think that great music has the seeds of the political environment that it comes out of. And especially black music is almost always inherently political, if not overtly political, quite often it's not overtly political, but it is inherently political. And just even things like expressing black joy in an oppressive Hood environment is inherently political. So it's kind of like, how can I create a situation where I'm talking about politics through the lens of songs that are talking about politics in their own way? So that's what this show is really about. Here's these amazing songs and the political messages that are inherent in these songs. And it might be something that's mentioned in the song or something that is critical to why. Uh, the artist was able to become a star in the first place. So, we talk about, you know, uh, NWA and the crack war, public enemy and mass incarceration, Tracy Chapman and affirmative action. Uh, there's one that I really like about Diana Ross and gay liberation. It's kind of weird for me to say it. it's that I like, but, you know, people who have multiple children know sometimes you have a favorite child. And that is one of my favorite children out of this because we were able to talk about gay liberation and its relation to disco in a really interesting and nuanced way. And obviously there were people in the streets and people in the legislatures who were really making that point uh, about gay liberation, but disco was a part of that. One of the people I have on the show says he was around, I think he was around 10 or so in the mid seventies when disco was still rising and not the national phenomenon that it was in the late 70s. And he came out to his father and his father was like, that's cool, but I don't know of any happy gay adults. Hmm. And he was like kind of crestfallen by that realization, but then seeing the flourishing of disco in the late 70s and all these happy, authentic gay adults really helped him feel comfortable about coming out and propelled him and others to, you know, demand more of this country. So disco was definitely part of their uh, liberation movement over multiple decades. So I just I wanted to tell some of those political stories about what what has happened in this country through the lens of some of the great songs.
0: And where were you as a black person in the 80s? What was your life like during the 80s?
4: I was in uh, grade school and high school, so, you know, you were definitely old enough to be politically aware of what was going on Um, and, you know, writing papers in school about affirmative action, these sort of things. And, you know, the 80s is such a pivotal period in America and for black America. So we really wanted to start there because you get affirmative action, mass incarceration, the drug war. Uh, Afrocentrism. There's so many important major ideas that are going on in the 80s. So I wanted to talk about those things. I mean, you you can't fully understand the impact that crack had on America and Black America if you weren't there. So we have two episodes that deal with crack from different vantage points. Uh, De La Soul had perhaps the best song about a family member dealing with crack addiction, Pastenius' brother, true story, was a crack addict, so he has this amazing song, "My Brother's a basehead, telling the story of what his family was going through, and that story relates to what so many black families were going through, of you know, or the community at large, you know, with all these people dealing with crack. And then there's one about NWA's Dope Man. We talk about the perspective of all this from the drug dealer and the impact that he had on the community as far as the emotional impact, the entrepreneurialism that he inspired, the economic impact in terms of, he was the one who had all the money. He was quite often the bank for the local community. So he's the one saying, you know, I'm going to fund that business and give money to that kid. And he's making choices based on like what gets to rise and what has to fall. And so there's a lot of interesting um, ground we have, we get to cover. I'm now working on Being Black the 70s and almost done with that. And when I finish that, then we'll do the
0: 90s. Nice. And where were you, where were you living, by the way, in the 80s?
4: I was living in Boston and, uh, yeah, going to school there. Since you
1: mentioned De La Soul and, and did a whole episode about uh, My Brother's a Bass Head, I'm wondering, you know, uh, one of their members, Dave Jolicoeur, recently passed away. And I'm wondering if you'd talk about him, any memories of him and, and, and his impact on, on hip hop.
4: Um, I mean, True Goy, you know, great rapper, you know, great figure within hip hop. I interviewed them a few times. They, you know, they were always sort of a group as far as just like you. I experienced them almost like as, as, as one. Like when I, the, I think three times I spoke to them, it was like, I spoke to all of them. So I can't fully say I have like an individualized sense, but, you know, lovely guy, humble, intelligent, fun, chill. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a tragedy, you know? Um, Yeah. We've had so many tragedies in hip hop and just another one.
1: And it came, he passed just as their music was finally going to be widely available After so many years of it being, I guess, held up because of sample issues, they sampled so much that they couldn't get it cleared.
4: I don't think it was a sampling issue. I think it was largely um, a label issue that the label wanted them to have a certain fee structure from streaming, and they refused to be part of that. And a lot of artists just sucked it up and went along with it, and they were one of the few who were like, no, we want a fairer deal. And it took years and years and years for them to get a deal that they thought was fair. And so that's why we now have De La Soul on Spotify and everywhere else. But uh, yeah, they were in a long, long dispute with Tommy Boy.
1: So since it's Pride Month, let me ask you about the episode you mentioned earlier uh, about Diana Ross and gay liberation and and the song you feature is I'm Coming Out, uh, which as you mentioned, became a a big anthem for, for gay people. It's also, by the way, for people who don't know, it's the sample for More Money, More Problems by by the Notorious B.I.G. So that's another reason why it's well-known. But one thing you talk about, and uh, this will be news to many people, is that Diana Ross had to be fooled, basically, into putting out that
4: song. Nile Rodgers from Chic wrote and produced the song, and he very much wanted to create the version of Sail Out, I'm, I'm Black and I'm Proud for gay people. Um, He was like, you know, they deserve an anthem. Diana Ross is this queen. And, you know, one of the biggest singers in the game. And like, you know, she would be the perfect person to give them and and they were already he was already working with Diana Ross and her next music. And, you know, but Diana at the same time was telling Niall, like, you know, I want to come out of my shell and move on to the next chapter of my life and grow up a little bit. She was thinking seriously about leaving Motown Records, which would have been a huge deal and would have represented like, okay, she's moving on to a new chapter in her life because Motown had been her home forever. So, you know, they made the song and, you know, Niall told her it was about her. This is your entering the stage music and this is your i'm gonna be a new me music like you know you're announcing a new you and it's actually a sort of i guess legendary moment in popular music because she was in the studio with niall super happy about the record they had recorded and she went to go see frankie crocker who was then like the most influential radio jock in new york which made him one of the most influential radio jocks in the country of course and She played it for him and he was like, Are you coming out of the closet? Are you gay? Like, people are going to think you're gay. Like, what is going on with this record? And she had not perceived that at all. And she went back to Nile. Like, Nile said she left joyful and came back crestfallen and was like, What have you done to me? Like, what is this song? And there was a months long fight to put it out. Cause I mean, In the 80s, just the whisper of so and so might be gay could be damaging to your career. I mean, it's insane to think back about that, but like people were not tolerant at all. So they were afraid of that, Uh, you know. And I actually searched and searched and searched, could not find anywhere that Diana Ross talked about the song Hmm. in this way, but it is still to this day her entrance music, but she's not necessarily publicly acknowledging the other side of it, but it is absolutely um, anthemic for, uh, for that community.
0: Yeah, that was, that was interesting. I mean, it's a perfect song because it works on both levels, as you say, during the podcast, right? Like it's obviously you can't really hear, although I guess Diana Ross could, but you can't really hear the term I'm coming out without thinking of coming out of the closet. But obviously it also was about her coming out as a new kind of performer, um or like the new stage in her life. But was it not as common an expression then? Like I'm just curious how she could not get that 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 there was that double meaning.
4: I I don't know. I yeah. I, I don't know. I talked to Niall about it. We didn't have a solid answer on as to why Diana would not know right. I'm coming out, what that would mean. But you know, there's an interesting part of the story because she asks Niall directly like is this a gay song and he's like you know through my entire career and he produced a million great legendary artists he's like I never ever lied to artists except this one time I looked her in the eye was like No, it's not at all. And of course it was. He came up with the idea while he was at a gay club in the bathroom surrounded by Diana Ross impersonators. And he was like, she would be the perfect person to do an anthem for them. And this is what the song should be. Right. So, you know, that was his plan from the beginning. And he did not include her in the plan.
0: plan. Did anyone write? Like, were there any rumors? Like, oh, is this her coming out of the closet?
4: No, not that I know of. I didn't see that.
0: Right. I mean there's such a culture of straight women being kind of champions of gay liberation and uh you yeah. know icons for gay men. So I think that probably is how most people would have heard it. Another really interesting episode was about Bob Marley and I didn't know that he had predicted that he would die at 36. I also didn't realize he was so young when he died. But can you talk about this prediction and also the, the claims that he was kind of psychic as a kid?
4: I mean, this is what a lot, his biographer and a lot of people who were around him have said that he had strangely psychic powers and new things about people that they could not, that he could not have been told new things about himself, like when he would pass away, which he said repeatedly throughout his life. And it really just drives to the notion that Bob was more than just a normal performer, that there was something beyond about him. And he has this this almost, you know, Jesus-like level of sort of mysticism and fame and just sort of the vibe about him. And it sort of, it comes through in the music, in the way that he just represents the people and sings for the people. And part of what we talk about in that episode, Redemption Song is one of those songs that talks about long-term Black oppression and looks it in the eye and takes it seriously, and at the same time maintains a deep determination that we will survive and we will get through this and we will get to a better place. And there's a class of songs by major, major artists that have made this point about black determination from Sam Cooke's A Change Gonna Come to Kendrick Lamar's All Right, that like we're going to make it. It's hard, but we are going to make it. And, you know, it's interesting because the right likes to talk about. You know CRT and sixteen nineteen. As far as like, well, if you tell black kids that oppression that they're oppressed, then they'll just not try. And that has never been the response to that, right? Like, it it generally inspires a sense of determination. You know, resignation, And, and and it inspires a sense of gratitude that I think of myself as almost literally standing on the shoulders of all the people in my literal family and my extended black family as the reason why i have the life that i have is because i'm standing on their shoulders and they did what they did in the civil rights movement in jim crow in slavery you know in the streets in their business in their professional lives that allow me to be here now and so i have this tremendous sense of gratitude and at no point does knowing about how hard black history was make me or others feel like depressed like we have no chance you know we would not understand the world if we did not talk about white privilege and white supremacy because then we would just think well white people must be better that's what i mean what would be the other answer to why they have the overwhelming majority of the wealth the overwhelming majority of the power in this country like are they smarter than us? Are they better than us? Are they supposed to? No, it's like centuries of white privilege and white supremacy have set this up. There's, you know, But if you don't understand that, then you really don't have any understanding of the real world.
0: Can you talk about the role of Jesse Jackson, who appears in uh, the episode about Tracy Chapman's song, uh, yeah. Fast Car?
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, the, at the core moment of Fast Car, in the biggest part of the chorus, What she's talking about is the desire and the imperative to feel self-esteem, to feel belonging, to feel valued and worthy and like, you know, a a full human being. And quite often the poor don't really get to feel that that often because in their lives, they're quite often just sort of dismissed and forgotten and shunned aside. And that message Was at the core of Jesse Jackson's two presidential campaigns in the '80s, when he was basically this moral leader more than a political leader, who would talk, who would constantly recite this poem, "I am somebody," and it was just all about, you know, my hair, my being, who I am, I am important, I am valuable, I am somebody, and it's 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 akin to. Black is beautiful in the 60s and Black Lives Matter now. It's that same sentiment. Just for the 80s, it was I am somebody. And these ways of communicating self-esteem to Black people. Because part of being in this country and dealing with internalized racism is your sort of hatred for yourself, you know, or parts of yourself. And we need to be, like, telling each other, like, manually, like, Black is beautiful curly hair is beautiful like big curly uh noses curvy noses are beautiful dark skin is beautiful we need to tell ourselves because the society is constantly telling us it's not and you know black lives matter is the same thing and i am somebody so i'm making the connection that tracy chapman is talking about that and that was really important uh with jesse jackson in the 80s
1: there's some great songs about Jesse Jackson's campaign. There's that Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel song, Jesse, which I think was these, like an unofficial campaign song for him. Do you know that one? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's here.
3: This name is Jesse. Hmm. Hypocrites and Uncle Tom's are talking trash. Liberty and justice are a thing of the past. Let's talk about Jesse. They want a stronger nation at any cost. Let's baby death. Even if it means that everything will soon be lost. Let's talk about Jesse. Uh.
4: But we talk a lot about the Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday song, which, you know, now for black people is just like the way that we sing happy birthday to each other when we go to, a, you know, a birthday party, but like that Stevie made that specifically at Coretta Scott King's request to help this larger effort to make the King birthday into a federal holiday. And it's a really interesting political story about how Coretta and others worked diplomatically from the ground up, from the grassroots up, from the cities up to the federal level uh, to push the country to have a King holiday. But part of the point I make within this also, this episode also is that Stevie Wonder presents sort of the vision of King that we have or that many people have now as sort of, you know, let's all hold hands and be together and be unified and sort of like the sort of good King. He was, King was also about reparations. You know, he was much closer to Malcolm X than the modern sort of peaceful version of King content of our character King is. And Public Enemy sort of references that other side of King and that sort of Malcolm X in their song, By the Time I Get to Arizona, because Arizona in particular was extraordinarily reluctant to do a King holiday. And the voters there rejected the King. It wasn't just the politicians, the voters went to the even as like major corporations are like, Fuck Arizona, we're not going to Arizona. They pulled the Super Bowl out of arizona about all this and still they said Fuck King." we would rat like oh my god like how red is arizona right <laughs> and they're like we don't even want we'll be the only state in the country tonight and so public enemy song was very sonically aggressive and loud and abrasive um in an amazingly musical and 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 and, and rhythmic way but it's definitely like a sort of grinding sort of song. I'm
1: down to the day, deserve a fitting for a king. I'm waiting for the time when I can get to Arizona. Cause my money is spent on a goddamn rent. Neither party is mine. That's a jackass or an elephant. 20,000 Nicky Nicky Puffles in the corner. Up the South block but they come California. Smile
4: and I They're expressing a much more angry message that, like, you are disrespecting our king, uh, and we are, you know, we're going to solve this by any means necessary. And in the video that they made, which played on MTV either once or twice, they are shown doing what we would considered now to be basically domestic terrorism against the political leaders of Arizona. There's a kidnapping, there's a shooting, a la the King assassination. And then uh, Chuck D., the leader of Public Enemy, pushes a button at the end of the video and a bomb explodes underneath the car of the governor of Arizona. These are obviously all fictional act- characters and actors playing. But this was extraordinarily shocking at the time. But the level of anger that we felt about Arizona is matched in this song so in each of the episodes I sort of bring in a second song to play off as a relief on the first song and to sort of see more about the first song through comparing it to another
0: yeah I never knew I knew that I know the happy birthday song but I didn't know it was from Stevie Wonder I mean I've heard Mm. it at birthday parties but that yeah I didn't know that one of my favorite episodes is the Tracy Chapman one, because not only speaking of having two songs, not only is there an, a very interesting story about Tracy Chapman, it has to do with Nelson Mandela also it has to do with her getting on stage in part because of a tech issue that uh, Stevie Wonder has. But it also tells this really fascinating story about Elizabeth Cotton, who oh. wrote this great song that I grew up hearing because my uncle, who was a blues guitarist, would play it, Freight Train. Oh, oh, yeah. um, so can you tell us about her?
4: Well, yeah, you know, just making the point about the impact that affirmative action has had on a lot of Black lives. And you can, you can really see it in the story of Tracy Chapman and Elizabeth Cotton. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Cotton grows up in North Carolina in the early part of the century. By like eight, she had mastered the guitar and was writing songs that would later become folk Legends, one of them being freight train. That would and by the way, later... he played
0: it upside down.
4: Yeah, that would later be played by the Beatles and and, and, and Ricky
0: and Uncle of Katie Halper, Ricky Eisenberg.
4: I mean, Less you know, well known this song, but this song becomes a, a folk staple. By like 12, because she's in poverty, the early part of the century, she is forced to leave school and work for the family. By like 15, she's married. By 16, she's a mother. By 17, she's divorced. And then she spends the next like 40-some years working up and down the eastern seaboard as a maid and a nanny. And she's in like her early 60s when she's working at a department store and she finds a lost child. And like, you know, Gen Xers will remember the time when, you know, there were big department stores and you might get separated from your mom. And then you're like, how do we find her? And there, they, you know, we used to, there was a loudspeaker, you know, your child is lost, come to whatever. But like, she finds this crying six-year-old who is six-year-old Peggy Seeger, little sister of Pete Seeger. And she mollifies her. She chills her out, wipes the tears. They go through the store. They find the mom. The mom is so impressed. She's like, why don't you come work for me? And so she does. And when she gets a free moment, cause the mom and dad are players and musicologists, she grabs the guitar off the wall and she goes in the private room and she starts playing. And eventually the kids are like, yo, mom, the maid is really fucking good on the guitar. Like really good. The parents are like, oh, she's incredible. And they set her up with recording, they help get her a touring situation. And in her in her golden years, Elizabeth Cotton becomes a folk star, a folk legend. And she's touring. She wins Grammys. She she you know buys a house for her family in New York State. And I believe the year she's performing up to like three or four months before she passes away. And, and the year after she dies, Tracy Chapman wins. A Grammy for Best New Artist. And Tracy Chapman could have been Elizabeth Cotton, having her talent squandered for decades or perhaps her whole life. I mean, how many people are there who, are, who could have done what Elizabeth Cotton did, but just didn't get that one random connection that allowed them to go back into it? Not just musicians, but painters, any sort of thing so Tracy Chapman is like a teenager in Cleveland in poverty basically single mother single child nothing is working out really and somebody's like you know you could we could get you a scholarship to one of the great New England private schools and they're like we know nothing of this private school system you're talking about and she ends up you know through affirmative action a better chance going to the wooster school in connecticut and it completely changes her life and it, she ends up becoming the superstar and it's just a really to me a really clear example of how affirmative action can change someone's life
1: listening back to uh to tracy chapman's talking about a revolution today which which she performed in that wembley performance um i don't know i'm curious your thoughts on this to me it's like the perfect harmony of a protest song and a pop song like both are are there it's like it's like lyrically it's so poignant and timeless everything she says totally applies today but also the melody is also so it's so catchy and appealing and i I personally can't think of a better uh fusion of the two elements like a pop song with, with a protest song
0: don't you know Talking about a revolution it sounds like a whisper. Don't you know how talking about a revolution
4: it sounds like a whisper while they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment line. I mean, you know, Tracy Chapman is definitely an extraordinary musician who doesn't always break through. That sort of sound doesn't always connect. She is extraordinary. And quite often somebody who's making that sort of music would not sell that many records. So the notion that she can write these great songs and tell these important messages and make it communicate commercially you know and she has this sense of like integrity like you believe Tracy Chapman means what she says it's not you know she's almost like like Bernie Sanders right like like she you like she I'll believes she believes
0: what are your thoughts on Cornell West who actually just announced I interviewed him last night And he announced that we already knew he was running for president, but now he's going to be seeking the green party uh, nomination. He's no longer running with the MPP. What are your thoughts on Cornel West? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to useful That
1: was great. It was great. And you know, it's a good example of the power of music. So obviously in speaking to Tory about politics. Um, for me, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what he says. It's, uh, it's in short, he's too lib for me p- politically, right? But yeah. musically, he's got so much that I, I, I love listening to him talk about music and cover music. I've been following his work for a very long time. He's a really brilliant cultural critic. And that's an example of the power of music, that even people who have political disagreements right. can come together uh through through harmony. And I just I, I love that about music, that it it bridges all these political divides.
0: True. And make sure you join the locals or the sub stack, usefulidiots.locals.com, usefulidiots.substack.com because we talk more explicitly about politics. We get into Obama, Bernie, Cornel West. Uh, it's a good time.
1: And again, check out Therese's podcast with the Griot. It's called Being Black in the 80s. And like he said, there's going to be a follow-up, being black in the 70s and being black in the 90s.
0: I'm especially excited about the 90s one.
1: <laughs> Me too. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
0: Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com/ usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at useful idiot pod and use the hashtag useful idiots pod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.